Hi, I'm Paul Shrivastava from the Pennsylvania State University. And in this podcast series, I'm speaking to some of today's leading science fiction writers. I want to hear their views on the future of science and how it must transform to meet the challenges we face in the years ahead. What kind of structure do we have to build that's about governance for the long term? Today, I'm talking to Karen Lord, an award-winning Barbadian writer whose latest novel, The Blue Beautiful World, imagines the transformation of our world after first contact with aliens. Karen also writes on the sociology of religion, ethics, and values. Our conversation touched on lessons from the COVID pandemic, short-termism, and the power of literature to reach through time. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, welcome, Karen. Thank you for being part of this project. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your pathway and relationship with science and science fiction writing? So I grew up with science fiction. I grew up enjoying science fiction. My undergrad was a science degree, but specifically it was history of science and technology. And at that point, I realized, well, maybe I can combine the sciences and the arts. My first master's was in science and technology policy. After that, I did, in fact, manage to work for a while in our Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So it gave me an awareness of how you have to move the knowledge of the lab to the implementation within the real world, as it were. You were sort of a rare person who had a science background and went into implementing science policies and engagement. But generally, it's the politicians who get the results of science and they forget about the ethical questions that the scientists might have struggled with. How do we get scientists to come out of their comfort zone of doing the science into the action zone, helping people like you who are in the bureaucracy or in the policy infrastructure? So I'm going to push back a little bit against what you're saying because you're always making a sound that scientists are the good guys and the politicians or the policymakers are the bad guys. But sometimes it's flipped. When you have a scientist, you have someone who is, is focused in a very particular field and may have a very narrow field of view and may themselves be completely unaware as to how um, their discoveries can be expanded in ways that they may not have intended. So it, it's definitely a conversation I think we need to be seeking. It's, it's, a, it's a feedback um, in, in both directions. Yeah, I very much agree with you. I mean, we saw under COVID, at least in the United States context, science was very in my view, clear about the need for vaccines, but the political discourse was not as clear. And there is this question of what we can learn from these crises and health events. And you've dealt with this in your books. The Plague Doctor was very prophetic. I mean, it sort of precast what happened in COVID. Tell us a little bit more about that work. So The Plague Doctors, okay, that was a story that I wrote for an anthology about the future of health by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And at the time that I wrote it, I drafted it, it was about mid-2019. So we hadn't heard of COVID yet. But I was fortunate in that I did have a colleague who is, he is a doctor, and I could go to him and say, I want a pathogen that does this because I want to have these effects in my narrative. So, um, you know, it's not a virus in the story. It's actually bacteria. It, it works in a kind of a two-phase way where there's a mild phase and then a critical phase because this was set slightly in the future and I wanted to make it seem as if 
there had to be something that lulled us into a sense of false security before our health systems were suddenly overwhelmed and then everything started to crash. I realize now, looking back, that I was a little too sanguine about how quickly people's health systems could be overwhelmed, even for something that's that's not as 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 sneaky as as what I wrote about. You know, there were still ways in which we just were not prepared for the scale. I want to push a little bit deeper into it, uh, in terms of lessons that we have not learned as a result of COVID. You go back now, three years later, and the infrastructure has not evolved that much. We moved on to the next crisis. So how do, how do we learn the lesson? We basically have a situation in so many countries where political term is four to five years. And I think that you do have an ethos of, of short-term thinking, but you're not coming across people who are thinking, like, what do I need to put in place that's useful for the country 50 years from now? What kind of structure do we have to build that's about governance for the long term? that looks at things much further down the line, that looks at what we need to do to maintain it. You know, none of these things are easy answers, but I do like to think that they become a little easier if we come from a a set of foundational principles. I'm using the term principle almost in a scientific sense now, not in a a moral sense, not in a value-oriented sense. You don't even have to attach a, a sense of altruism to it. It can really just be a case of how do we make things more comfortable for everybody 100 years from now? Yeah, that's interesting. You, you brought out 50 years, 100-year time horizons. Even those are short compared to geological times that we are now starting to think about, the Anthropocene. So the science fiction have a role in kind of rethinking the time horizons that we live in. Well, science fiction has been doing that for a very long time. We've always had um, both for our near future, far future, alien civilizations in the, in the far distance, thought experiments on what it could be like, what it should be like. One of the things that impresses me about literature, whether it is science fiction or poetry or anything, is that it is our one form of communication across the generations. I can pick up something that someone has written 200 years before, 500 years before, and it gives me a glimpse into what their hopes and fears for the future might have been. Sometimes the mere fact of that is enough to shift the needle in your own head and think, well, if words can last this long, if words can have meaning this this far from the originator, then what other things should I be looking at that also should have meaning further on from where I am right now? I wonder what your thoughts are about how we might use science to come up with more egalitarian and more common purpose set of motivations to pursue, rather than letting one big system run away with them. So for a lot of people, science fiction is literally about the hard sciences. It's about, you know, let me imagine this technology and how it improves things. And it's always wrapped up with physics and astronomy but there's another branch of science fiction, which is the more sociological science fiction. And it looks at how do societies operate? How can politics evolve? How can governance evolve? Many of my colleagues now in the present day who are also looking at that, you will find them feeding into their world building this whole idea of how do we as human beings change and grow and evolve and in terms of our collective action. There's something quite amazing to be said about 
imagining other ways of being as a people. Right, right. That is wonderful. And your past novel, The Best of All Possible Worlds, is concerned about preservation of cultures and heritage, while your most recent publication, The Blue Beautiful World, deals with transformation of our world uh, with first uh, contact with aliens. And it seems to me that there is a kind of natural tension between preservation and transformation. Absolutely. Because even the things that we think of as our present culture and tradition are, in a sense, crafted. I remember still how shocked I was when I was first informed that the, the Scottish tartans that you see today were very much a kind of a, a late invention, <laughs> which was, it was not as authentic, quote unquote, as people would like to think. And I began to examine more and more the, the kind of the mythos that we create, especially around cultures and countries and peoples. I, I begin to understand now that this is another form of storytelling, making a meaning out of something, making a pattern out of something. But as you said, there's the preservation of that, but then there's a transformation where you, you kind of let go of things that don't serve you anymore and take on new things that are, are a better service to you. So the human mind is, is incredible at just like taking these things and making myths out of them. And I think that it's both a, a collective action and it's also maybe a bit of a personal action. And I just want people to be aware of what they're doing so that we don't hold on too tightly to some of the things that we think of as our original culture, but which, as I said, maybe have made up, you know, just barely 50 or 100 years prior. And, um, and also be aware that some of the new things that are coming are not things that are going to destroy us, are not things that are going to change us beyond recognition, but could be a very natural evolution, a very useful evolution into our next stage. So I want to go to another piece of this uh, science and society engagement, which I have noticed in your work particularly. Most of science today is highly specialized with uh, professional scientists who will carry out most of the work. They're highly trained. In your work, protagonists also carry major responsibilities in responding to major transformations in face of crises or otherwise. And now that we are, we talked earlier about COVID and we are living in the time of what's called poly crises. In the coming crises, we will have to work with science. Everybody will have to work together. So what thoughts do you have on engagement of people and communities in science? The moment you said that, I, I kind of flash forward to, well, we're, we're recording a podcast right now. And once upon a time, podcasts did not exist say the Victorian age or whatever, where there was always a, a kind of a, a money or a class element to how well you could hope to be educated. But the podcast, basically, you need a device um, that will be able to broadcast it. And the podcast itself is free. People can share their enthusiasms. They can be like, look at this really cool thing. And frankly, I think that human society is built on the statement, look at this really cool thing and see if you like it as much as I do. So I feel as if we, we have all these new tools, we have all these new modes, and um, it's just keeping the conversation going whichever way we can, because that is, that is our human condition. We always want to talk about our cool stuff. We always want to hear what people are thinking about it. My query over here is about this engagement between communities and science to co-produce knowledge in ways that it becomes more useful. In fact, I think of science fiction as a transdisciplinary endeavor. 
you're taking the whole scientific, natural and social sciences and making an amalgam. You might not call it transdisciplinary, but I'm, I would like to hear your thoughts on the possibilities for more this kind of engaged action. I love the concept of a sabbatical, not just like a year-long sabbatical, but even shorter times where people are encouraged to go out into the field, especially, or just like go and see, okay, here's what you research. Here's an actual program that takes you on a tour of this is where this has been implemented. This is where this is actually doing some good or causing some problems. So you can, in fact, um, create a situation where um, you almost introduce a fieldwork type component that is still adjacent to your field and and can hopefully broaden the mind of people a bit um, as they leave um, you know, the very specific thing they're doing and then go out to see some of the real world effects. When I started off as a writer, which is a little more than 10 years ago, I had an idea as to what the life of a writer would be like. And I'm happy to say that my expectations are being subverted almost every day. I would never have expected that I would have been on a podcast like this, especially like from Barbados. <laughs> just ways in which people are willing to to speak to science fiction writers. It's not just like a casual interview where we're, we're getting this from people who are very much involved in, in policy, very much involved in the science. They are listening to us. They're curious about you know what we see, what, what the possibilities are. Um, I didn't even know this was possible and I'm fascinated by it. And I'm wondering to what extent other people and other jobs can see that same kind of evolution where you're always willing to, to learn, to change, to adapt, and to be aware that you can step out of what you thought the boundaries were of what you were going to do or what you were meant to do. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the International Science Council's Center for Science Futures done in partnership with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. Visit futures.council.science to discover more work by the Center for Science Futures. It focuses on emerging trends in science and research systems and provides options and tools to make better informed decisions.